0: This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast.
1: Welcome to the second event of this year's English Endowed Reading Series. Uh, tonight, our guest is Dr. Solvig Robinson, professor of English uh, at Pacific Lutheran University and also director there of the Publishing and print arts program. Uh, I think in a in a way, Dr. Robinson embodies both the profession of the editor and of the liberal arts professor, in that if you look through her publication record, her activities, you will see someone who is involved at the highest levels of a great many different, disparate seeming endeavors. Um, As those of you who are my editing students know, uh, the the editor's job is everything. And you have to be good, you have to be the expert in the room at everything when you're the editor. Because anything can come up from a marketing question to a distribution question to a layout question to a citation question on Chicago style. And your job as the editor is to answer that question with authority. Uh, and in scanning her very impressive publication record, uh, we see topics as disparate um, as her most recent book called The Book in Society, an introduction to print culture. Uh, we also see um, a uh, Book called A Serious Occupation, Literary Criticism by Victorian Women. Uh, And we see public article titles like, Sir, It is an Outrage, George Bentley, Robert Black, and the Condition of the Mid-List Author in Victorian Britain. Um, (laughs) Which is just wonderful, because no one pays any attention to mid-list authors ever. Um, And here's a scholar paying attention to them in Victorian Britain, which is just delightful. Um, and the, the other publications in Dr. Robinson's record are, are equally as diverse and interesting, and in speaking with her, uh, she is uh, wonderfully authoritative and delightfully interesting on very much any topic. Uh, so I'm very excited for her presentation tonight, and I hope you will welcome me in joining Dr. Solvig Robinson. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Um, It's really been a pleasure uh, being here today and getting to meet um, some of the faculty in the English department, but also um, a number of the students. And um, I just want to thank you for um, being so gracious in your welcoming of me and shepherding me around and making sure that I got from point A to point B without losing myself along the way. So um, it's been really great. So um, the talk that I'm giving tonight um, on Victorian Women's Publishing House work Um, Is part of a project that I've basically been working on in one way or another since graduate school. Um, When I was in that plight that graduate students find themselves of needing a dissertation topic and thinking, oh gosh, there's so much stuff that's already been published on Charles Dickens that I just don't dare. Um, What can I do? Um, One of the things that interested me as someone who was working and had been working for some time in the 20th century publishing world was, okay, well, what did the 19th century publishing world look like? Um, And at the time I first started asking those questions, not many people had been asking or answering it. So it was really an area in which I had some um, freedom of movement. And um, as I'll describe a little bit in in one portion of the talk, um, the field has what was sort of a um, completely open savanna, you know, go explore. Um, has gotten really crowded and grown up and there are mature trees and things there. So navigating your way around it, seeing um, what's going on and working in a field that's sort of grown up around you and that you've been contributing to um, is sometimes non- it, Sometimes it's really, really exciting. Sometimes it's disconcerting. And sometimes, frankly, it's scary as heck um, because you're just waiting to open up the next sort of um, publish his catalog, and discover that somebody has published your book because you've been taking so gall darn long about finishing your own. But the good news is, within the next 12 months, this book will be done. It will be with an editor somewhere being considered, or it will be on a really nice bonfire roasting beanie's in my backyard in Tacoma. So, stay tuned for future um, events. So, anyway, um, so, uh, Victorian Women's Publishing Housework, Gender and Culture Authority in 19th Century Britain. The feminist recovery projects of the 1980s and 1990s did much to reclaim Victorian women writers and their participation in the literary marketplace. And one crucial aspect of those now classic studies entailed the nature of literary work. As Mary Poovey pointed out in her 1988 study, Uneven Developments, literary work had interesting parallels with housework. Like a good housekeeper, she observed, the good writer works invisibly, quietly, without calling attention to his labor. Both master dirt and misery by putting things in their proper places. Both create a sphere to which one can retreat, a literal or imaginative heart where anxiety and competition subside. Now, as this passage suggests, a literary life was open to women, both because of what it entailed and also because of where it was done, which was usually in the middle-class home. Nineteenth-century parlors were full of women who could ply their pens every bit as deftly as their needles, and we now know that they did so in a great variety of literary genres. As Joanne Shattuck forcefully stated in Women in Literature in Britain 1800 to 1900, quote, no longer can we accept without qualification the assertion that this was the age of female novelists. Because in addition to the many female novelists who have taken their places of honor in literary canons of 19th century literature, the 19th century also gave rise to a surge of women poets, translators, and playwrights and also women editors, commentators, and social and aesthetic critics. So what I want to do this evening is to discuss how Victorian women of letters, women who were engaged in 19th century publishing housework, influenced the creation and production of Victorian literary culture. I first began studying women editors and critics when I was in graduate school. And at that time, it really was about enough to just document their existence. Found one! My colleagues and I would gleefully declare in conference papers or in class seminars, and the audience or our dissertation directors would look really pleased for us, you know? Um, But there have been big developments since that early discovery phase of scholarship. What were tentative assertions two and three decades ago about how many women may have worked as editors and critics? And the numbers were initially as low as a dozen. That was as many as I was willing to claim. or as optimistic as, ooh, maybe a hundred, those numbers are now beginning to really be quantified and confirmed, at least to the extent that it is possible to do so for an age in which anonymous or pseudonymous literary work were really the norm. The rapid digitization of Victorian periodicals and the compilation of various publishing-related databases are finally making it possible to aggregate details from far-flung scholars and archives, and to confirm that a very significant number of women were engaged at all levels and in all ranges of activity in the Victorian publishing world. Just this summer, my research assistant and I, um, and I was able to get an undergraduate research assistant, unfortunately, about one week after the deadline for getting that funded by our university, so I paid for it out of my pocket, but she was so worth it. Alison, thank you. Anyway, my research assistant and I This summer, we're able to compile a list of well over 500 Victorian women periodicals editors, many of whom were previously unknown. I I certainly had never heard of them, and I've been working in this field for a long time. So the numbers are starting to get firm and solid. We're starting to know who these people are. Okay, But to ask the tough question that I frequently ask students when I'm reviewing early drafts of their essays in my classes, so what? What difference does it make that there were so many women editors working in publishing housework in the 19th century? If we didn't know about them, why would it matter? I'd like to suggest that there are three main reasons why research on Victorian women of letters is important to our understanding of Victorian literature and culture. And all three are bound up with the question of cultural authority. Cultural authority is the ability to impact public perceptions of value in a particular context. According to critic Laura J. Miller, in a literary context, cultural authority is premised on a perceived distinction between good books and mass market literature, as well as a division between those people who are capable of judging literary standards and the rest of the populace, so everybody else. And this means, in essence, that if we want to properly understand print culture in any time or place, we need to know where the value judgments about good books come from. Victorian editors and critics made important decisions about content and form that shaped what their contemporaries perceived as the norms for various kinds of literary discourse. What's a good novel? What's an essay? What's a poem that's properly put together? And those decisions in turn have determined what has come down to us, what we currently read and value from that period. So since their decisions mattered, I'd argue that so do the details about their lives and their work. It's still not fully appreciated, for example, that many of the key decision makers in the Victorian literary marketplace were, in fact, women. And that means that we've been reaching conclusions about how 19th century cultural authority is constituted that are at best incomplete and at worst wildly off base. So the first reason why this area of research matters is that it helps us to make sure that we have our facts straight and to correct the record where necessary. The second reason it matters is that getting the facts straight also alerts us to problems with our scholarly methodologies. If we are asking the wrong questions or using the wrong tools to find the answers, we are inevitably inevitably going to come up with wrong or at least misleading conclusions. And the third reason why this research matters is that it helps us reach a more sophisticated understanding of how the Victorians shaped and responded to their own culture, which in turn can help us reevaluate, and if necessary, change our fields of study. Now, probably the most important outcome to date of the ongoing scholarship about Victorian women's publishing housework is that we now know that it was not just a couple of exceptional women who worked as editors, critics, or even publishers. Now, the Victorians themselves granted exceptional status to the two so-called female sages of their age, the novelist George Eliot and the journalist and social theorist Harriet Martineau. The notion of their exceptionalism was sustained by scholars well into the 20th century. But even as Eliot and Martineau were held up as exceptions, Their role as cultural authorities was mostly underappreciated, and in some instances, the information disseminated about that aspect of their work was flat out wrong. For example, George Eliot's role at the influential quarterly Westminster Review in the 1850s was often simply presented as a model of how Victorian women used anonymity or pseudonymity to cover their supposedly transgressive professional work. Women are not supposed to be doing this work, so let's cover it up. So when Marion Evans, the flesh and blood person behind the pen name George Eliot, ironically described herself in a letter as a woman and something less than half an editor, the statement was taken by literary historians as a formula. Woman equals half an editor. Now this confirmed, to what, schol- confirmed what scholars thought they knew about Victorian gender relations and about cultural authority, and it certainly confirmed the view of people like Eliot's biographer Gordon Haight who believed that Marianne Evans was too emotionally insecure to do anything without the support of a man. Certainly, she couldn't have been in charge of a magazine. So, even though George Eliot made the comment, you know, a woman and half an editor, um, after she had logged two full years of doing nearly all of the editorial work for the Westminster Review, and even though she made that comment to a friend and contributor who was well aware of what she actually did for that paper, Many historians continue to believe that the Westminster Review's success in the mid-1850s was mostly due to John Chapman, the man whose name was listed on the magazine's masthead, and that George Eliot was just a kind of literary parlor maid. She was working behind and tidying things up. In fact, this belief was so well-established that it wasn't even challenged by the editors of the Wellesley Index. A groundbreaking reference work published between 1965 and 1988 that identified the identities of thousands of anonymous contributors to important Victorian periodicals. The Wellesley editors largely dismissed Eliot's contributions to the Westminster Review, and so the true extent of Eliot's influence wasn't fully appreciated until a new generation of scholars began re-evaluating the evidence. In 2006, for example, Rosemary Ashton looked more closely at the correspondence between Eliot and the Westminster Review contributor George Combe, and she discovered that Combe had believed that Eliot received a salary for her work on the paper, which actually would have been kind of unusual for the age, for the era. But this is a piece of evidence that attests to how substantive George Eliot's editorial work actually was at the time. More recently, Finola DeLand has analyzed a number of publication details, including really picky publication, print culture nerdy kinds of things like, ooh, they published an annual index of articles each year. How was that organized? What were the subject headings in this index? And and seriously, you've got to be a print culture nerd to, to want that information sorted out in some sort of a way. But that's the kind of thing that she was looking at. Um, in order to show how very fundamentally Eliot had reshaped the magazine in ways that really helped to rebuild its circulation and rebuild its reputation. Those kind of details can matter. Now, surprisingly, even the very inaccurate picture of George Eliot's role at the Westminster Review has turned out to be helpful in that the fact that she was doing it at all and that that was more or less acknowledged prompted investigation into the staffing and organizations of other Victorian periodicals, which led to the rediscovery of other women editors. One such rediscovered figure was Christian Isabel Johnston, who edited the popular monthly Tate's Edinburgh Magazine in the 1830s. Like Elliot, Johnston worked on a mostly behind-the-scenes unnamed basis, and with much the same result as far as her reputation went. William Tate's name appeared on the masthead, And Johnston stayed in the shadows, even though it was an open secret in Scottish publishing circles that she was the one who was doing most of the work on the magazine. Ironically, as literary historian Alexis Easley has documented, Johnston was lauded by her early biographers for her self-effacement, a quality which, quote, had enabled her to pursue a literary career without compromising her feminine virtue. Now, Johnson's feminine virtue may not have been compromised by her effacement of her editorial self, but our understanding of the cultural authority exerted by Victorian women editors certainly was effaced. The case of George Eliot also points to the second reason why research into Victorian women's publishing housework matters, and that has to do with problems of methodology. Because although some historians did eventually go looking for other hidden women editors, The more lasting and pernicious effect of the dismissal of George Eliot's anonymous editorial work was that it seems to have prevented many scholars from seeing what was right before their eyes. The scores of women editors whose work was not anonymous and whose names were actually prominently displayed on the covers of their publications. For example, the Victorian sensation novelist, um, Mary Elizabeth Braddon boasted in an 1866 letter that her name was being blazoned anon on hoardings and railway stations. But her name was also blazoned on the masthead of the monthly literary magazine, Belgravia. Just as fellow novelist Ellen Pricewood's name was blazoned on the cover of the Argosy, ditto poet Eliza, Eliza Cook's name on her journal, and Mary Howitt's on the paper she co-edited with her husband, William. The late-century um, magazine Woman at Home was advertised as being Scottish novelist Annie S. Swan's magazine. Now, as it turns out, Swan was mostly a figurehead, but Woman at Home was, in fact, edited by, editor, by editors who were women, um, first Jane Stoddard and later Alice Head. So, and these are just some, some cover pages and stuff. You know, there are women's, I'm sorry, there are women's names prominently displayed, but you know, nobody, nobody looked to see them. Once scholars did know to look for them, um, they started to see Victorian women names, um, not just on the mastheads, um, but also in the contents pages and signed columns and articles and publication notices. And that's before they began searching into 19th century publisher's archives for unnamed editors and contributors. A particularly valuable resource for finding previously unrecognized women of letters has been the many Victorian women's women's periodicals that were published throughout the 19th century and then increasingly in, in greater and greater numbers from the 1860s onwards. These periodicals have turned up a legion of women editors and critics, and not just the women who worked for a particular publication that you might look through, um, but also one whose work was being reported on in that publication. So I have found out all kinds of things about women working for publications that are no longer in existence. If there were ever copies, they were maybe lost in the blitz or whatever. Um, But I can find out quite a bit about um, which publications they were working for, uh, during what dates, what kinds of things were published and so forth, because other, other publications were saying, ooh, see what she's doing, see what she's doing. So that's really helpful. Um, many scholars were initially drawn, drawn to Victorian women's periodicals that were connected to the Victorian women's movement um, for pretty uh, obvious reasons. Um, it was just interesting to see what were, what were the sisters doing 100 and some years ago. Um, But in the last 20 years, even more traditionally domestic Victorian women's papers have generated some really important scholarly work, um, especially after domestic publications were reappraised by Margaret Beetham in a groundbreaking 1996 study, a magazine of her own. So we're starting now to look at, you know, magazines that focused on needlework patterns and cooking, as well as let's get the vote out and work for women. More recently, it's been increasingly possible to break what has been, in some circles, a rather lazy link between looking at women writers or women editors and deciding that, well, that's just women's studies. And I, you heard me use the shot quotes on that, right? Just women's studies. Um, because it turns out that many Victorian women worked for or ran periodicals that really had virtually nothing to do with either the Victorian women's movement um, or domestic culture. For example, um, and I think this is a rather striking example, um, Catherine Impey was the editor proprietor of a radical political magazine entitled Anti Caste. Um, this publication was published from 1888 to 1893, and it was dedicated to exposing racial prejudice um, with the gro- goal of um, promoting uh, harmony for races um, internationally. Um, The Anticast was one of the first British periodicals to publish the full horrors of lynching under Jim Crow in in the United States. Um, And it even went as far as to reprint a notorious souvenir postcard of a lynching. Um, And very few publications on either side of the Atlantic were willing to publish those those kinds of images. Um, But Anticast did because it wanted to draw attention to the fact that there was such a thing as a sort of souvenir, gosh, I was there and they hung a man in this tree. Um, These were were tourist kind of items. Um, The social geographer Caroline Gressy has done work on this magazine recently. And the fact that she's a social geographer and went at it sort of looking at race and um, settlement of of issues of, of blackness in British 19th century culture that that she ended up coming to this magazine and then writing a study that really focused on an interesting woman editor and her efforts to um, move something in her own country that was happening on the other side of the Atlantic um, shows you how something that's not literary studies and not really gender studies can nevertheless lead you back to the question of gender and cultural authority in the 19th century. And I think what this suggests is that continuing to challenge disciplinary boundaries between women's studies, literary studies, historical studies, print culture studies, whatever, continuing to push and say, well, what can we find out about the world Um, is one way that we can maybe find out more, not just about Victorian women, but about Victorian culture generally, if we sort of take some of our disciplinary um, blinders off and and just follow um, where some of these um, explorations lead us. Um, Another example of women's publishing house work that is definitely outside the usual paths of inquiry is the case of Ethel Coleman's Lure, who was editor and proprietor of a magazine called The Feathered World. Now, first published in 1889, The Feathered World catered to poultry fanciers, um, essentially breeders of exotic birds, um, mostly chickens of one kind or another. Now, there was nothing inherently feminine about raising poultry, And in fact, accounts of 19th century agricultural shows and letters to the editor of The Feathered World and other poultry magazines. And trust me, honey, there are others and I've read them. Um, These letters suggest that it was actually mostly men or predominantly men who bred and exhibited the poultry and who judged the various poultry contests at, at various agricultural fairs. Believe me, there was nothing literary about this. These magazines are very, very strange. Um, they mostly are full of statistics about egg production, which breeds are good layers. Um, they've got diagrams for building hen houses um, and quite lavish engravings of the Princess Alexandra's poultry house at the back of her palace in Kensington park um, very strange um, so you know diagrams for incubators um, and if you were really lucky you'd get an issue with an expensive colored print of a prize hen or rooster witness that um, so these aren't um, these aren't liter- these aren't the kinds of things that people in english departments would generally go looking for but there's all kinds of really interesting stuff Um, particularly Ethel Coleman-Lewer's editorial columns. These are usually brisk and no-nonsense. She gets really strappy with people um, for not following what she'd set up as a kind of pre-PayPal, a 19th-century PayPal, that if you wanted to buy birds or eggs from one poultry breeder. You could send the money to the magazine. They'd send the order on when you were um, sure that you would got what it was that you um, had bargained for and it was in good shape. She would then make sure that the person was paid. It was kind of a cool thing to have set up. So, so she would occasionally get really pissed off at people who had gone ahead and just paid for things and then didn't get what they wanted and would write to her and complain about it. It's like, your fault, you didn't do it. So she's got this sort of brisk, no-nonsense, get-with-the-program-people voice, which is really entertaining. Um, And the the editorial columns also tell you all kinds of things about, oh, our circulation is up to this, now we've got a show here, now we're gonna be able to do a special number, ooh, you might've noticed we've got two color prints this this week, well, well, you know, here things are going. And every once in a while she would also relate um, details about family life. So every once in a while you get a slightly personal touch. Um, and the articles I came to really love um, were accounts of her daughter who was born on the very same day of the first issue of the paper. So you can imagine Ethel was rather busy that month. Um, in any event, because the daughter was born the same day, she was nicknamed Featherina. And so on the subsequent years, you can find out about Featherina growing older and going to her first dance and, you know, the whole thing's in there eventually. Um, Now, however odd this publication might seem to us now, it had an extraordinary run of about 50 years, and still in publication well into the 20th century. And I think it's another example of the kinds of power and influence that women could exercise in quite unexpected parts of the Victorian publishing world. Studies of publications like Anticast and The Feathered World provide us an impetus for reappraising pet notions about just how and where Victorian women were engaged as cultural authorities. So it doesn't have to be housekeeping, it doesn't have to be baby culture, it doesn't have to be getting the vote. Um, you might just go look and see what the paper is about, I don't know, railway engines. Um, who, was, who was putting those out together? And you might be surprised, one of the things that my research assistant and I discovered this summer was that there were a lot of women editors of business directories in small British towns. Somebody had to put out a guide before there was Google so that you would know who was doing what kind of work and where you could find them, what their business hours were and such. And the number of women editors associated with those kinds of very practical publications is really quite surprising. Now, you wouldn't think that that would be where they'd be because that's not domestic. It's business, they're out there. But of course, perhaps as as customers of some of these businesses, um, they were well-organized to know who was selling what and where and whether it was, it was good goods. So, um, going away from these, these like off-the-wall examples that I've just been talking about, if we return to better-known examples of women of letters, there's also been a real blossoming of scholarship in, in recent years that takes quite seriously um, the contributions of women to 19th century culture. For example, the prolific and popular Victorian novelists Margaret Oliphant and Eliza Lynn Linton um, are a real case in point. Um, in the past decade or so, they've both basically sparked academic mini-industries. Um, there have been so many books put out um, about by them, about about them rather. Both women edited books, um, but their most important work was as literary and social critics. And the reviews and essays were published in some of the most important publications of the day, especially Blackwood's magazine, Macmillan's magazine, and the Saturday Review. Now as in the case of George Eliot and Harriet Martineau, those two female sages who were deemed exceptional, the renewed scholarly scholarly attention to these better known Victorian women has had a kind of spillover effect um, in that it is inspired um, many other scholars to look at less familiar figures and and look at them again and say oh what were they really doing identifying these women and verifying their contributions um, has required developing new research tools and strategies um, has led to the creation of new databases and resources and all of these are proving useful not just to the study of print culture but to a wide variety of disciplines Um, one such example um, being run out of out of belgium actually is um, at the the University of Ghent is putting together a huge database about the women who were working as reviewers for the Athenaeum magazine, which was a really influential reviewing publication published weekly. Um, Basically, if you put a book out, you wanted it to be at least mentioned in the Athenaeum. Publishers would send everything to them and say say something about it Um, because they were getting such a huge volume of books. They had a huge stable of literary critics. And some of them have been known, but, but nearly everything was published anonymously, so a lot of it's been mysterious. But this project being worked out at the University of Ghent is identifying hundreds of additional reviewers and attributing hundreds of reviews to, in many cases, women writers who initially we didn't even know were working for them, let alone having this kind of voice. These ongoing inquiries and reappraisals um, also point to the third reason why research into Victorian women's publishing house house work is important. Um, And that's because it really is helping to reshape a more general understanding of 19th century literature and culture in ways that are, I think, starting to point towards some paradigm shifts. And to focus this last point, I'm gonna return to the importance of place as it relates to where literary or publishing house work takes place. Now, research on Victorian women of letters has done much to dismantle a simplistic and overly rigid version of the paradigm of separate spheres. Um, The idea that women's proper place is in the private world of the home and family, while men's proper place is in the public world of government and commerce. The more we've learned about what 19th century women and men actually did and thought, the more we've been able to develop a more nuanced understanding of how the Victorians sized up their own world. This process of creatively reconsidering the separate spheres paradigm has involved what critic uh, Caroline Levine calls a strategic formulism. Levine suggests that flawed but useful concepts like separate spheres don't need to be abandoned. They just need to take their place with other explanatory models or what she calls forms. Forms, she explains, do not only constrain and confine. They are not static and they do not endlessly reproduce the same. Instead, their interaction is dynamic. When they meet, they often generate a radical alterity, an array of unexpected and unintended differences. When rhyming couplets meet nationalism, when the binary form of separate spheres meets the Bildungsroman, their encounters produce a history of unplanned consequences. Levine suggests that the unexpected encounter between forms can even lead to revolutionary new social formations, and to a clearer understanding of how those social formations work. So don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, look at it, see what you can do, see how you can understand it properly. So reframing the separate spheres paradigm has required some careful analysis of just what kinds of work actually took place where, in public or private spaces in the 19th century. And instead of taking it as a given that men worked mostly in offices and women mostly in the home, Um, scholars have begun looking for concrete evidence of what they did where and why it mattered. Many 19th century women of letters did indeed work in the home and this was sometimes a distinct disadvantage for them as the example of Lady Blessington reveals. Now Lady Blessington is probably best known for her editing of a number of literary annuals or books of beauty. These were elegant expensive volumes of poetry that had lavish illustrations And they were traditionally given to women at Christmas time or perhaps at the time of um, an engagement or coming out into society or maybe even when they got married. Now, according to the historians Terence Hogwood and Kitty Ledbetter, Lady Blessington's home-based work environment was not only less convenient, but it was also more expensive than the work environments commanded by her male contemporaries. The men could go knock on doors or conduct business in a London office. They could be out on the street talking to each other, running into each other, wherever they were. But Blessington was confined to her parlor where she sat writing flattering notes or inviting authors to a reception at her own expense where they'd be entertained and charmed into contributing to whatever the next book of beauty was. After the Irish potato famine decimated Blessington's family estates, editing literary annuals was her only source of income. So that her editing business that she conducted in her parliament literally kept the parliament, the parlor, um, you know, going right around her. And when her publisher died bankrupt, um, she lost everything that she had. Um, So she'd already lost most of her private wealth. Um, She also lost her professional wealth. Um, And she herself died soon after. And and it's one of these cautionary tales, you know, did she die because the work dried up? Possibly quite literally, yes, um, to a large extent she probably did. Lady Blessington's cautionary tale about the potential dangers of home working literary work may explain why many women who worked from home made Jane Austen-like efforts to conceal the evidence of their professional activities from visitors. And that came even when those visitors had come expressly to see evidence of their literary work. Um, In the late 1880s and early uh, early 1890s, the journalist Helen Black interviewed a number of women writers in their own homes for her book, Notable Women Authors of the Day, which was published in 1893. Now, on her visits, Blackett explained that she expected to see evidence of writing, the manuscripts, the copy, the proofs, um, but she was often really disappointed because not only did she rarely see such evidence, um, but the whole offices of the women writers were often a lot less prominent and a lot smaller than those of their not particularly noteworthy husbands, brothers, or sons. Now, although these examples may appear to reinforce earlier scholars' ideas about how 19th century women tried to hide their professional activities, there are a wealth of counterexamples that assure us that the picture was actually a lot more complicated. For example, despite the close identification in the feathered world between Ethel Coman's um, Lewer's personal and professional lives, she always conducted her magazine, did her editorial work from an office in the Strand, which was at the very heart of the Victorian printing and publishing industries. And she was proud of that. She boasted about the fact that she arrived by nine each morning and she remained at her office, quote, just as long as there was any work to be done. So it didn't matter when it was, she was there. Now, Rachel Sassoon Beer, who was the editor and owner of the Sunday Times and the Observer Newspapers in the 1890s, actually reversed Coleman lewers practice of going into the city by instead importing a completely functional newspaper office into her home, which was just off of Hyde Park, um, complete with a telephone link to, the Fleet, to Fleet Street. And she's one of the first editors that, in, in biographies, there are accounts of her having a phone, which is really quite fun. Now, Like Beer, like Rachel Beer, the publisher William Robertson-Nickel did nearly all of the work, um, all of his editorial work for his paper The British Weekly from home, Um, but I think quite amusingly, unlike Beer, he intentionally had no telephone because he thought telephones were one of those public space annoyances that he was damned if he was going to have in his home office. So, um, Nicol and his editorial colleagues, who were both men and women, he had um, a couple of very important uh, female deputies um, who did a lot of the editorial work, um, they spent only one morning a week in the newspaper offices on Fleet Street, and all the rest of the time they either met in Nickel's home or they worked in their own homes or clubs. And we also know um, now that at least one of the notable women um, authors that Helen Black visited in the 1880s actually managed to fake her out. You know, Helen Black, show me the copy, the proofs. Um, But it turns out that the poet and novelist Jean Ingelow actually rented a separate flat that she used only for her writing, but she invited Helen Black to her home and didn't tell her that she had this writing apartment. So why she didn't tell her, but, you know, it was a kind of... A kind of persona, a projection of a persona that was keeping the actuality of her professional work um, out of out of the immediate view. Now, ultimately, I think what is important about these description of the spaces in which Victorian women and men of letters perform their publishing housework is not so much the where, but the what. Because whether the work was performed at homes, in spaces carved out from domestic activities, or whether it was performed in printing offices into the wee hours of the morning, what mattered was the work itself. And that work retained significantly the same character and value no matter where it was performed or by whom. Victorian women knew that contemporary gender ideology put some limits on where they could go and what they could do there. Um, not being included in the staff banquets that were thrown for the contributors really irked Eliza Lynn Linton. She was one of the Saturday Review's um, leading writers, but she couldn't go to the dinner because it was all cigars and brandy, and women women weren't welcome there. But Ethel Coleman's lure threw her own gala banquets for all the printing and editorial staff of the Feathered World. They all got to go out and, and party into the night, um, men and women together. Margaret Alef- Oliphant found it really, really annoying that the Blackwood, um, the Blackwood family, her editors, were constantly sort of patronizing her and, and condescending to her. But on the other hand, anytime she asked them for money, they gave her long-term, mostly interest-free loans, which was sort of a nice perk. So she could play that femininity both ways. Okay, you won't let me do these kinds of things. I'll just borrow money off you and you won't be a cad enough to ask for interest on it. This I'll make this work for me. The fluidity of gender relations, then, in the 19th century publishing world meant that a number of women were able to exercise real power to shape the content and structure of the publications with which they were associated and, by extension, Victorian culture itself. And they clearly relished that power. Bessie Rainer Parks, who was editor of the early feminist paper, the English Woman's Journal, explained in 1864 that if she'd sought outside financing for her paper, she would have been forced to give up the advocacy of any subject which would have entailed a breath of ridicule or any thorough expression of opinion. But by retaining control of the paper, she ensured that her purpose and her plan were honestly conceived and carried out. A generation later, Ada S. Ballon, who was founder and editor of the magazine's Baby, and womanhood, boy, those are a trip to read, um, declared proudly that as her own proprietor, her own publisher, and her own editor, she was able to work the paper according to her own desires, and to this, she said, is due much of its success. And Rachel Beer, the, the newspaper publisher, described the deep satisfaction she derived from her journalistic work. In journalism, she said, there's a sense of achievement. The work suits me, and I find in it all the compensation I need for whatever trouble it may be. I have the opportunity of giving expression to my beliefs and of influencing public opinion what I believe to be the right direction. All of these women clearly believed that their proper place in Victorian society was where they could exercise cultural authority. And to fully appreciate the nature and consequences of that authority, I think we need to continue to study their lives and their publishing house work. Thanks.
1: awesome feathered world who knew expect a class on this very soon i'm <laughs> um, chickens are near and dear to my heart so this is this is yeah jan <laughs> term uh do we have are there questions do we want to ask dr robinson any questions yeah hannah
0: What I think